I'd like to invite you to turn uh, into uh, James chapter 1 in your Bibles. James chapter 1. Um, we started a, a new series uh, at Covenant Life Church last week, and uh, I was able to kick it off. It's uh, a series in the, in the book of James. And so this is very fresh with me, and when Andrew... Uh, uh, I mean, when Albert uh, asked if, if I could come up, I, I knew I, I, I really would love to give this message up here. I think it has universal application. Uh, it's the beginning portion of James' letter, and it has to do with trials, uh, being steadfast under trials. So I'd like to read this portion of Scripture, verses 1 through 18, then pray. So if you'd follow along, I'm reading from the... English Standard Version, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change." Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we simply ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us to help interpret this portion of Scripture so that we might understand, see it with the eyes of our hearts, be informed in our minds and be able to put into practice the wisdom that has been given to us here. Lord, especially in this area of trials, tests, hardships, and the suffering that accompanies it, 
We need to be strengthened by your grace. So let that come about this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've titled this uh, Steadfast Under Trials because I really believe that's what's being talked about here. Uh, But just as we begin to um, maybe uh, get us oriented a little bit, um, a very simple introduction to this sermon and to this letter is given in chapter 1 and verse 1. It's simply these words, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. So who is James and who are these twelve tribes of the dispersion that he's writing to? Uh, Let me just mention a few things. We, We don't really know that much about James. In all likelihood, this is the James who is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You may be aware, you may not be aware, but Jesus was not an only child. Uh, Joseph and Mary went on to have at least six more children from Matthew Matthew 13, verse 35. We find that he's got four brothers that are listed, as well as a couple of sisters, and there may even have been more. James is the first of those brothers that's listed. We don't know that much about him. We do know that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he was rather skeptical. But following the crucifixion and then the resurrection, James came to faith. And one of the reasons is that he actually received a personal appearance by the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. He was likely the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul writes in one of his letters that James was a pillar in the church. Of course, the first Christians were all Jewish. And there's a very good possibility that this letter was written from 40 to 45 A.D. And if that's true, that would make it possibly the earliest of all of our New Testament writings. And James is writing, he says, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. What's that? Well, the 12 tribes, of course, is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. But James intends that perhaps in a more metaphorical sense. The dispersion refers to those forced relocations that the Jewish people underwent throughout their history. They were forced into exile by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, and then there were other exiles as well, so that you had Jewish people really in all parts of the Roman world at this time, and even beyond. You find them everywhere. And they formed the seedbed of the early church. Paul and his missionary journeys would first go to the synagogue in Antioch or in other places, proclaim the gospel, and then you'd have people come to the Lord. So these first Christians were, were Jewish and James' audience is probably, in the main, Jewish Christian believers. This is the very, very early part, the first couple decades of the church's existence. And his introduction to the letter and of himself is so very brief. He just says, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He doesn't name drop. He doesn't say, and also my half-brother, my big brother Jesus. He doesn't do that at all. Uh, he doesn't say anything about himself, and it's probably because he was well-known to the people that he was writing to. Well, this is a letter not just for Jewish Christians. It's a, a letter for all believers. But these believers were probably familiar with the Old Testament writings because throughout this letter there are a lot of allusions to the Old Testament, to the law and the prophets and the writings. As a matter of fact, James reads a lot like the book of Proverbs. There are a lot of pithy statements, very compact, a lot of vivid imagery. You know, we have tongues that start fires and riches that rot. And even in this portion that we read, the the flower, the wild flower, the wild, the grass in the desert and how it wilts very quickly under the heat of the scorching sun. And another interesting thing about this letter is of the 108 verses in it, 50 of them are imperatives, that is, commands. So James is no nonsense. He gets right down to business. He's very direct. He's very much to the point. And he is interested in an authentic Christianity, in a Christianity that's not just believing, but believing and doing, hearing and doing. James is very concerned that people live out their faith, that there's a genuineness and authenticity to their Christianity. But he gets right into it with this issue of trials. Very abruptly, if you look back at verses 2 through 4, he says... Count it all joy, my brothers. Oh, one other thing. When he says brothers, it's Adelphoi. It always includes sisters as well. It's to men and women. He uses that a number of times in this letter. So, ladies, you're included. Whenever you see that brothers, we could say brothers and sisters. We're all included here. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I told you he's direct. He gets right into it. Endurance under trial or steadfastness under trial. Now, what's he talking about? I think, first of all, we got to just... Say something about trials in general. Why do we have trials? Aren't trials a real trial? Such a drag. Life is full of trials, isn't it? Trials and suffering, they go hand in hand, and they are a fact of life ever since the fall. Trials, tribulations, testings, hardships. Now, Jesus told his disciples, he said to the twelve, in the world you will have tribulation. And Paul told the disciples at Antioch, and this is right after he had survived a stoning, he said, we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And Peter, in his first letter, said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if some strange thing were happening to you. And those verses, and we could quote others from the Bible as well, they indicate that it's not... If we will have trials, but we will have trials. And there are things that we must go through. Uh, they're, they're a fact of life. And, and James counsels that we should count it all joy. 
And you might get the impression from that that he's maybe minimizing or dismissive of trials and maybe not really very pastoral. Well, he's writing a general letter. And he's being general in the way he goes about it. I am sure that if he was one-on-one with someone going through a trial, he would be very sensitive and ask a lot of questions and try to come alongside with compassion. It can seem like he's being curt and callous and minimizing, but he is not. He dearly loves those whom he's writing to. He uses that word dear, dearly beloved, I think 19 times in the letter. He's a wise pastor, but but he does want to get to the point, and his point is that God has a purpose in trials. And that purpose is nothing less than our maturity, our perfection, our completeness, the development of our character. Trials are really the testing of our faith, and they are meant to produce something. It's a purpose clause here. They are to produce, the purpose is steadfastness or endurance or perseverance or patience. It's been translated all that way. And and the word itself, the Greek word uh, literally means to remain under. To remain under. Think of weightlifting. You lift it up, you remain under it, and this both demonstrates your strength and builds your strength. Now, I don't lift weights. That may surprise you. When it comes to trials, my goal is not to remain under them, but to get out from under them. And to get out from under them as soon as I can. That's my goal. But that's not God's goal. He knows that trials test our faith and reveal the genuineness of our faith. But few people like tests. Very few people like to take tests. God lets our faith be tested. It's actually more than that. He designs tests specifically for us. Because his goal is to prove the genuineness of our faith so that we can be bona fide Christians. Not flimsy, phony, fake, but authentic. To demonstrate to us who he is, his faithfulness, and that through us his reality and faithfulness can be demonstrated to others. Uh, Gail MacDonald is a, uh, an author some of you may be familiar with. She's written a number of books. And she writes that as a young Christian, after she graduated from high school, she and her boyfriend became engaged. And then after their freshman year at college, they decided together that she would drop out and take a job and begin to earn some money to prepare a nest egg for their marriage. So he continued his education. She got a job and the bank account began to grow. And as she tells the story, she says, A hope chest began filling up, honeymoon reservations were made, and wedding plans crystallized. But one day, as the wedding date approached, a shocking letter came to me from my fiancé at college. 
He wished to terminate the relationship abruptly, decisively, without explanation. It was over. I never saw him again. Loss, confusion, rejection, and self-pity engulfed me as I grieved alone in my bedroom. My parents were sensitive and allowed me that time of grief. Three years of my life suddenly seemed null and void. The turning point came a few days later when my father poked his head into my room and said, Well, honey, I guess we're going to find out whether or not this Jesus is all you've been trying to tell us He is to you. I guess we're going to find out whether this Jesus is all you've been trying to tell us that He is. Well, Gail passed that test. But that was a real test. Jesus truly was all that she believed Him to be. And the rest of her life has demonstrated that. See, God wants to prove the genuineness of our faith. He wants to prove it to us. And He wants to prove it to those around us. He wants us to be steadfast, enduring, persevering, regardless of what we face. The full effect of that will be our maturity, our perfection, our completeness, that we be lacking in nothing. In order to do this, he says, you should count it all joy. It doesn't mean that we are to feel happy about trials. No, it means to rejoice in God in the midst of the trial because we know that he's doing something of eternal value in the trial. He also says that trials are of various kinds, and he doesn't specify I think he's purposeful in that because if he did specify a particular kind of trial, then the rest of us say, well, that doesn't apply to me. But, but this is universal. He's general in this way because in this room today, for all of us, I mean, there are those who are experiencing the painful trial of bereavement. Someone that you love has died. Others are facing trials of failing health. Or chronic pain. And then there are relational trials. Husbands and wives that are not getting along. Parents and children. And some are dealing with depression. And there are many other forms of trial and hardship that we could mention. I've been with people and they've gone through excruciating trials. And I've often seen amazing expressions of faith. But we often get tripped up on things that we may not even recognize as trials. The little continual drippings in life that vex us. Like that allergy that just doesn't respond to treatment. Or the guy at work that just drives you nuts day after day. Or the traffic. I mean, all of these things can bug us. And instead of counting it all joy, we grump and gripe. And we complain. And we won't let these things have their full effect. So often trials go on and on and on. Well, He wants us to be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. That's His goal. And if we're wise, we'll make it our goal as well. And this actually brings us to the next point. 
which is he wants us to be lacking in nothing, but the fact is we are lacking in many things. So the next section begins with the words, if any of you lacks wisdom, and then he goes on to say, let him ask, let him ask God, let him ask God who gives generously, let him ask God who gives generously to all, and he gives generously to all without reproach. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven with a wind, tossed. Don't let that person think he'll receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded, a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Now, as I introduce that, I emphasize that God gives generously to all and he does so without reproach. That means without making you feel bad for asking. Have you ever been in a place where you had to ask somebody for something and you did it somewhat reluctantly and they answered, but they made you feel like you wish you'd never asked in the first place? That's, that's not what God's like. He doesn't say, you again? Don't you ever learn? Or how many times must I tell you? He doesn't do that. That's because he's a good, good father. The emphasis here is that God gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. Later in the letter, James will say, you have not because you ask not. You can almost hear Jesus behind him saying, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He goes on to say, how many of you fathers, if you have a son that asks you for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? No, of course not. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those that ask or give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's what God's like. And James is encouraging us to ask. We need to ask for help. We need to ask for wisdom. When we're in the midst of a trial, the most important thing we can do, it seems so simple, is to ask. Asking is what we do when we pray. It's so simple. And when we do, when we pray, when we ask God for help, we immediately put ourselves in a proper relationship with God because we are humbling ourselves. We're coming and we're saying, I need your help. And that's good because God gives grace to the humble, doesn't he? Say that with me. God gives grace to the humble. James says it in this letter just a couple of chapters later. Often at the end of our services, people will come down for prayer. And to encourage them, I, I will often say something like this. I say, by the very fact of you coming down here and asking for help, you have humbled yourself. You're saying, I have a need. Do you know what God promises to those who humble themselves? And very often they know, yeah, it's grace. Now, I don't know exactly how that grace is going to be manifested, but in some way, shape, or form you will receive grace. But you have to ask. And that's what James is encouraging here. He says, if any man lacks, but it's wisdom that they are to ask for. That's what we lack. People going through a trial, people asking for prayers, often, I need wisdom. And what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is just a general term, and it's used for seeing the world as God sees it, and then acting accordingly. Wisdom is seeing. God, God made the world. He knows how it works. We want to get wisdom so we can 
view the world as God views the world, and then act accordingly. We all need wisdom. We need it continually, but we especially need it when we're facing trials, don't we? And asking is what we're told to do. It's so simple, isn't it? But that's how answers begin to be found, by simply asking for help. Now, there is a condition. We have to ask in faith. Oh, I knew there was a catch. Well, when Paul says, or I'm sorry, James, when he says, ask in faith, nothing doubting, he, he, is, he does not intend to imply that unless we come with a gold-plated, mountain-moving confidence, we're, we're not going to get anything at all. That, that's not what he means here because he goes on to describe it as being double-minded, literally double-souled. A double-minded person similar to when Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You can't have one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. You've got to be dedicated to, I want to serve God. I want to follow Him. I want to follow the wisdom that He gives. I'm not going to be double-minded about it. But, but certainly, this is not to discourage those whose faith is weak. Because who are those whose faith is weak? All of us. All of us. And here, it could get a little tricky, but, but think about, remember the man who had a son that was having serious problems, and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus answered his prayer, did he not? But he didn't say, hey, you know what, your unbelief is fine too, don't even worry. He didn't say that. No, he, he reproved him for his lack of faith. And he will reprove us for a lack of faith. He actually wants us to believe that he is and that he will help us. Is that so crazy? You know, right? Okay. So he doesn't commend our weak faith. No, he wants our weak faith to grow so it's a strong faith. But that doesn't mean that, oh, you can't expect anything. You're, you're not strong enough. That's a mistake. Don't think that way. The encouragement here is to ask. And that's why he starts out by saying, God gives generously to all without reproach. God prizes our faith. And my friends, I want to tell you that when you're going through a trial and you believe God even a bit, that's very precious to him. He does not despise that. So the Christian is one who believes and who fights against his unbelief. He's never content to remain in a place of doubt. But nevertheless, as he fights that fight of faith, he knows that God prizes his faith. And when you trust Him in the midst of a trial, He is pleased. When you fight the fight of faith, God is pleased. So we need to ask for help. The main thing is to ask. We will ask if we're humble and recognize our need, but not everyone recognizes their need. And that leads into the next section here. It can seem like James is changing the topic. He says, "...let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation." And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. What's all this about rich and poor now? Has James really jumped to another topic? Not exactly. He just got through saying that when we face trials that are designed to make us complete, lacking nothing. The fact is we are lacking, so we need to ask God for wisdom because we need God. But there are those who do not see their need for God and for wisdom. That's the problem with the rich. 
He doesn't really think he needs God. He's rich. The main problem with the rich man is not that he has money. There's nothing wrong in itself with that. The problem is it leads him to think that he doesn't really need God. So James says, well, hey, the lowly brother has been lifted up by the gospel to a place of exaltation. He should boast in his exalted state. That's great. He's an inheritor of the kingdom. He's a child of the king. But James says the rich, he should boast in his humiliation because through the gospel he should be able to see that he and his riches are not permanent. They are fleeting. They will vanish. They will fade away. They will not last. You cannot lean on them in a time of trouble. You can fool yourself into thinking that I've got riches, I don't need God, but that would be very unwise. And by the way, we shouldn't limit this, the rich being just those that have a lot of money. Anything that would give us status in the world's eyes or in our own eyes can be a danger in this area. So if you are very good looking or if you are an exceptional athlete, or you are so smart, you're smarter than everybody else, or you have political power, or you are artistically brilliant or scientifically amazing, anything that you would tend to trust in to make you think, hey, I've got this or I'm that, anything, you fill in the blank. If you're so highly esteemed among your peer for peers for whatever reason, again, those things aren't wrong in themselves. But they're not permanent. They're fleeting. And they can deceive you into thinking, I don't need God so much, really. I'm rich. Remember, Jesus told the story about the certain rich man and his lands brought forth plentifully. And he said, what shall I do? I don't have anywhere to store my goods. I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And so he did. And and so after he had all these riches accumulated, he said to himself, Oh, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. And then, who is going to get those things that you've accumulated? That's the... That's the temptation in riches, is to think that we don't need God. And he uses all this language that comes right out of Isaiah 40 to describe the impermanence of anything that we might trust in in this world. It's like a wild flower. Oh, it looks real good, but it's grass. That's what it is. And in the desert heat, it wilts. It withers. Pass away, fall, perish. Later in this letter, James will say that man is like a mist that appears for a short time and then vanishes. This is a word for, for all of us. The gospel humbles us. I mean, there is a sense, my friends, in which we are all rich. We live in the richest part of the richest country in the history of mankind. Today, the ordinary person lives better than the kings of England a century ago. You f the fact that you've got indoor plumbing makes you rich. 
things that we just take for granted. So this is a word for all of us. We can be unaware of our need. I was up in the middle of the night last night and I just thought to myself, thank you, Lord, that I am in a house that I'm not free. I mean, I was freezing anyway. But imagine if I didn't imagine if I was living in a tent somewhere. That was cold, boy. That's very cold. Well, gospel humbles us. It tells us we need a savior. We can't save ourselves. Let us not be deceived. Let us appreciate the status that the gospel gives us. I mean, Jesus was humiliated so we could be exalted to the place of seated with him now at the right hand of the throne of God. He has been exalted from his humility through the resurrection and exaltation so that he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. But we should never forget the fact that we are beggars. We have nothing with which to commend ourselves to God. I mean, literally, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. This should humble us. So if you are here today and you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you, come to Christ. Let Him give you eternal life that never perishes. That's the wonderful statement of John 3.16. God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Otherwise, we do perish. Well, our final point is that trials and temptations are not the same. There are some ways in which they're similar. I'll get to that, but let me read this last portion again, verses 12 through 18. Trials and temptations are not the same. James now goes back directly to trials, which shows us that's what the whole section is about. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, verse 12, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth or begot us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. Unlike the foolish person who fades away, that foolish rich man, the man who remains steadfast under trial is blessed, and when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. He will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who pass the test. Right? Wrong. <laughs> it's promised to those who love him. Now he has stood the test, but the crown is promised to those who love him. Now, why did I do that? Because the real question for you and me is not how tough we are. You know, some of us are tougher than others, but relatively speaking, we're all grass. We're all 
a mist. So the real question for you and for me is not how tough we are or how much we've suffered or how great are our trials. The real question is, do we love God? Because the Christian is the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who loves God. And that Christian will persevere because God is preserving. I don't know exactly what the crown of life is. It's a good thing, I'm sure of that. But when we compare ourselves with one another, well, I didn't burn out, or I managed to go through it, why can't she, or that sort of thing. Or when we think, you know, I, my trials aren't really that great. Other people have suffered so much more and we tend to... That kind of comparison really isn't helpful. It isn't. We should weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Okay? That's called compassion. But beyond that, be careful. There's something more in this section, though. It's seen in the contrast between trials and temptations. In verse 12, James says, He who remains steadfast under trial. And then a verse later, he talks about those that are tempted. You know, the same Greek word translates both of those. It's just a noun and a verb form, but it's the same Greek word. There's a contrast, though, that comes out in translation between what is a trial and what is a temptation. And he says, let's not be deceived about that. Trials come from God, and they're meant to produce steadfastness. That's God's intention. But temptations are not from God. They originate in our own lusts, our own desires, and they produce sin. They entice us, and it leads to death if it's not checked. It's very important to recognize the difference here. God tests his children, but he never tempts them. He never lures them into sin. And the reason that James gives, and this is very, very important, is that God cannot be tempted with evil. Therefore, he tempts no one to evil. The difficulty in understanding this stems from the fact that the same circumstances can be an occasion for trial or temptation. Back in the 1980s, uh, I was finishing up some degree work and I was pastoring in Lancaster and I commute to Philadelphia. From Lancaster to Philadelphia is about an hour and a half commute. And Philadelphia, as you know, is a very tough town, okay? Philadelphia is the city of brotherly shove, right? <laughs> this school was located in a part of Philadelphia called Hunting Park, and that was a tough part of an already tough town. A lot of crime there, drugs, prostitution, all kinds of things. I knew my route into the city and into the school and my way out, and I would not deviate from my route. But one night I got there, and I had to park a little further from the school than I, than I was normal, would normally do. And as I pulled up alongside the curb there, uh, there was a lady standing there, nicely dressed, and she waved at me. And being a friendly sort of fellow, I waved at her. And the next thing I know, she's starting to get into my car. And that's when I realized... Uh-oh. No, no, I'm very happily married. Thank you very much. And, uh, okay. Well, that was both a trial and a temptation. It was a trial from God, 
and it was a temptation to my flesh. Uh, and by the way, in case you're wondering, I passed the test. <laughs> it would be wrong for me to say, I'm being tempted by God. No, he cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anyone. But when someone's lured and enticed by his own desire, he falls into sin. And when that sin is full grown, it brings forth death. So the life cycle of sin starts with our, our own lusts and desires and temptations come. And if we act on them, sin is conceived and the end result, if we don't resist, is death. Well, there's another life cycle that's talked about here. And this is a life cycle that begins with God. He's the father of lights. And from his glorious throne, he sends down gifts to us, good gifts, perfect gifts. The greatest gift that came down to us was Jesus Christ who became incarnate and lived a holy life and died a sacrificial atoning death to pay for the sins of those who would believe in him, sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead, he ascended back, and is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But he has given us a gift. And it's this other life cycle that I'm talking about. We have been born again or begotten through the word of truth. Jesus isn't specifically mentioned here, but this new birth, this new life cycle originates in the very heart and mind of God and comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of lights created the heavenly lights. And like the sun, He is always shining down on us with grace and mercy. Even at this very moment, if you're sitting here suffering some excruciating trial, you are still at the same time benefiting from the grace and mercy of God, just like the sun is shining. And there's no variation. There's no change with Him. He's unchangeable. He's always good. But when trials come, it can seem... Like God has gone away and like the sun is no longer shining. It can seem like God has withdrawn his mercy and grace and the sunshine of his countenance. A few years ago, uh, it was right, right around this time of the year, January, I, I went to Germany to visit my daughter there. Claire and I went to Germany and we were there for about a week. She stayed on, uh, but uh, I was there for about a week. And uh, the whole time I was there, uh, well, the sun rose, if you could call it that, at about 9 a.m., and it set at about 3 p.m., and the time in between was cloudy and dismal and gray. This day, the next day, every day I was there, I never saw the sun. It was so dismal. But then I got in a plane... And within a few minutes, we rose above the clouds and there was the sun right where it had always been. It hadn't gone away. It was just my experience of it. Well, trials are like clouds that block the sun. But God invites us to trust that the sun is still there and that he's still there. There's a great hymn writer named William Cooper. 
He wrote that wonderful hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform, plants His footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. He struggled mightily with depression throughout his life. Perhaps that's why his words, the words to this hymn are so moving. One of the stanzas goes, Oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Trusting God in times of trial is the way forward and the way through. Trusting God and asking for wisdom from a Father who gives generously to all without reproach is the way forward and the way through. Trusting God from whom nothing and no one can separate you and who walks all things together for your good is the way forward and the way through. Romans 8.28, everybody's favorite verse. God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That verse has an extended commentary in the life of Joseph. Joseph's life really illustrates that verse perfectly. I mean, how well do you think Joseph understood God's plan for his life after his brothers threw him in a pit and then decided to sell him into slavery and then, while he's a slave, he works his way up in Potiphar's house, but then his master's wife tries to seduce him into adultery. And he righteously says, no, how could I do this great sin against God and against my master? But even though he resisted the temptation, he was still falsely accused and thrown into prison. And then he stays there year after year after year. And it looks like he's going to get out. He interprets a dream, but then that guy forgets him and he continues to let. How do you think he felt? God's plan for my life. It's not working out quite like I thought it was going to work. When I got this coat of many colors and saw the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to me and not working out very well. But then God, in his wisdom, at the right time, brought Joseph forth. He becomes the vice regent of Egypt, reconciles with his brothers. And then there's that beautiful statement that he makes at the end where he tells them honestly, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to the saving of many lives. In that sense, he's like a type of our Lord Jesus Christ who underwent such fierce trials as we could not even imagine in all of the suffering that he went through. So he is a Lord, he is a brother, he is a God who's not untouched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was tested in every point like as we are yet without sin. And he knows what it means to be human. And he loves us. Now the Lord is good. Cooper goes on to write, God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The Bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will, 
make it plain in due time. It might not be in this lifetime. There is no guarantee that we're going to understand in this lifetime what we've experienced. We can ask God for understanding like Job did. But there's no promise that God says, oh, and you're going to understand everything. However, in the next life, we're going to know even as we are known. So I believe it's appropriate to say there'll be an answer by and by for all those times you wondered why and all the tears life made you cry. There'll be an answer by and by. Let's pray.